What up, Revolution? There was one person. Y'all deaf? I said, what's up? It's weak, weak, weak. David will make you do that a couple more times, so I won't push it. Um, There's some good Sunny D and and, uh, um, Minute Maid back there if you guys want something to drink. If, you know, David's sermon dries you out too much. Um, But hopefully uh, you guys had a great weekend. And as you guys are coming in, if you guys have not filled out, if you guys are new, if this is your first time, um, we have some con- we have a greeting table out here. Um, I like it. Um, and so hopefully you guys can feel free to fill some of that stuff out. And, um, you know, we can get you plugged in to some of the small groups we have throughout the summer and throughout the rest of the year. Um, and we can get, get you guys more involved here at Revolution. Um, I have a few normal announcements, like always. Um, we have some small groups here if you guys want to get plugged in to help grow um, closer to, to Christ and one another as in fellowship. Um, Stephen, after the service, raise your hand. Steve, he's a pretty guy over here with the Cincinnati red shirt. After the service um, on Sunday nights, he has a small group. Um, Ryan Rolfe is doing a small group on Wednesdays. And next week, Dave will be starting a small group on Wednesdays. So if you guys are not involved, we'd love for you to get more involved um, with those. So see anybody who's up on stage after the service if you would like to get more involved. Um, Chris Jones, on Friday nights, we'll be starting uh, small groups. Um, I think he's going to play a video after, I'm, after we're done greeting each other and stuff, after the announcements, um, to give you kind of an intro, see what he's going to be up to. Um, we do some ministry in the East End. Uh, Allie and AJ, um, they're taking a small vacation, but they are usually in charge of that stuff um, every third Friday of the month, and we will let you know if you guys can't count or look at calendars. Um, we'll let you know when they're coming up um, on Facebook and here. Um, every third Friday, we do some cookouts, so we'd love for you guys, if you guys can contribute, um, whether that's money or your time, availability to help out with those. It's a great service opportunity. Um, and uh, every second Friday, we are doing trash pickup in the East End. Um, and so the Rev House at 706 Campbell um, usually starts around 6, 6 o'clock on Friday nights, um, the second and third Friday. So if you guys can give your time for that, that'll be great. Um, Brady Evans just got a job in Indiana, um, so he'll be leaving. Um, so if you guys could be praying for him, and uh, that, that goes smoothly. And after the service, as a group, um, if Alex um, comes, he will be, we will be praying for him as a group. Um, he's going into the Navy, um, so that's a really um, exciting time for him as he departs as well. Um, so I think that's about all of the announcements I have. If you guys would like to get up and greet each other, someone who you uh, haven't seen here before or don't really know very well, um, just try and greet someone you don't, you don't know. Thank you. who boasts should boast in this. God says that he understands me and that he knows me. It's from that knowledge of God that everything else flows. The whole business of the Christian gospel is to bring us to God. To bring us to God. The primary question that comes in then is what kind of God is there? Who is he? What is his character? God calls us to so gaze on Him, to see Him for who He is, to know Him, to walk in true intimate fellowship with Him, that out of knowing Him, we desire for our life to accurately reflect Him.
There's no doubt in my mind that uh, what a man thinks of God clearly indicates everything about his life of any consequence whatsoever. All the decisions that we make, that we see other people making, the root issue there uh, is what that person believes or doesn't believe about God, who they think he is. The great work of our lives ought to be to get to know this God and to get to know him as he's revealed himself to us on the pages of the Bible. The emphasis here is hunger for God. See, when we talk about attributes, we're not just talking about this or that, omniscience, righteousness, holiness. No, it's all these things that he is. The fullness of all perfection. Right on. If you guys are, if that interested you at all, and I'm telling you, I've watched some of the videos to it, and I've talked to Chris Jones about it, who's going to be putting that on on Friday nights at the Rev House. That is a really good Bible study. It's solid. Um, you'll watch a video every week. It's really good. I encourage you guys to get involved in that. What, what was it? You said it was seven, seven thirty, eight. Man, eight o'clock on Fridays at the Rev House. That's when he's going to be starting that. So that'll be a good time. And uh, Kelly uh, didn't do his job well this evening. Um, you can go ahead and laugh at him. Uh, it's fine. Uh, we're going to be doing a cookout this Friday at the Rev House, 706 Campbell Avenue. We need you to help us, please. Please come help us. Um, if, if no one shows up but the East End missionaries, whatever you want to call us, um, then we won't really be able to talk to anyone that lives around there. It'll just be food service. So we really need your help. Um, so please show up this Friday. Um, but now that that's out of the way, I'm going to do it. What's up, Revolution? One more time. What's up, Revolution? Both of those sucked, but we're going to go with it. We're just going to keep rolling through it. I wanted to be a rock star, and we're going to talk about that. This is the closest thing I get to crowd control. It's lame most of the time because you guys don't even care. Um, Anyway. Uh, you guys, you guys know. Um, sure, some of you heard or saw on social media or whatever that BB King died this past week, right? Anyone hear about that? Is this news to anyone? All right, BB King. Um, I'm not going to front, right? I'm not going to be like the rest of you out in Facebook land and act like that I actually cared about his music because I didn't. Um, if we're going to be totally honest with ourselves, I love metal. I'm not. I'm not sleeping on the dude. He was awesome. Right? He was a phenomenal musician, uh, like the top of his genre. No one's more famous. Like whenever I think of blues, I think of B.B. King. I think of Stevie Ray Vaughan. That's about it because I don't listen to the blues. So like I think of those two guys. Um, but the dude, he really, like he hit like the peak. Like it didn't get much higher than that guy. And uh, when I was thinking about, you know, how do I start this sermon off? Because this is the most awkward part of the sermon uh, period. Just standing up here. Hey, we're going to preach to you. Um, but I started thinking about, how cool it would have been to like reach the level that BB King got to. Like you can talk to people like even that are like relatively young and say BB King and they think, oh, that's some musician somewhere. I, I don't know anything about him, but he, I've heard he's a musician. Um, and I thought that would just be so cool. Like how awesome that would be because I used to want to be a famous musician and now I just get to bore you guys with my old stories about how I used to play music in a band. Um, it's kind of pathetic. Some of you think I'm pathetic. It's fine. I'm a has-been that never was. Um, like, I peaked when, I'm tw- when I was 21. Like, that's too early. I'm hoping Selena Gomez does the same thing. Um, but that's beside the point. Well, like, who peaks when they're 21 years old? And yet, here I am. Um, 
But anyway, uh, some of you guys know this whole spiel. I really wanted to be a famous musician since I was like 13 years old, right? Like I wore the like musician clothes, which is like a, a black t-shirt, khaki shorts, and Chuck Taylors. Um, you can see how much has changed in 10 years, <laughs> right? Like I learned the slang, um, the like, way musicians talk, right? I would practice for three or four hours a day, and my mother in the back is a saint because I played drums, and she could somehow sleep through it and didn't shoot me in the face for playing that much every day. Uh, I went to shows like almost every week. Like I got like a stack of old concert tickets like that tall at my house. Um, I listened to records nonstop. Um, I learned some of the history of music, right? I, I loved it. Um, and then down the road, I got together with some like-minded idiots, and we began to, like, write and perform music together, and that was the band that I was in for a while. Um, and now, I say all this to, to tell you this. I, I was absolutely sold out uh, to playing music. I was a slave to the game, and I absolutely loved it, right? Like, all of my time was devoted to practice, uh, writing, making uh, connections, performing, and critiquing music, which is how I got the, like, epithet of being a hipster whenever it comes to heavy music. Like, here's how, here's how dedicated I was to it. I even started reading poetry because I, like, wrote lyrics and I wanted to get better, right? So how lame is that? Like, think about that for a minute. Someone's like, yeah, I'm really into Metallica. And I'm like, oh, really? That's awesome. Have you read Emily Dickinson? She's, she's really enlightening. You should check her out. Um, right? Like, everything that I was, all, everything, like, all my money, all my desires, right, my thoughts, everything uh, was wrapped up in music culture and trying to reach that goal of making it. Um, yeah, that was like the center of my life completely. That was my reason for living. Um, but it didn't work out, obviously. Uh, I'm a pastor now, which is the most unmetal thing in the world that you can be. Um, in the words of, shoot, who's the guitar player from Rage Against the Machine? Tom Morello. Thank you, Stephen. Um, in the words of Tom Morello, I am now a part of the machine that I used to rage against. Um, some of you don't think that's funny, and that's okay, because you don't like Rage Against the Machine, and I really don't care. Um, but I said all that to tell you guys this, right? Like, that's my story. That's what I was all about. That was my life. Um, and I said all that because I know that some of you guys have similar stories. Um, maybe it wasn't with music, or maybe it wasn't with being famous. Um, but everyone in there has had some reason for living um, that you shaped your entire life around, all your life decisions, everything, right? You based your free time, your conversations, your friendships, your jobs, your education, whatever it may be, um, around that focal point of your life. And some of you attained your goal. Um, if your goal was to be a white trash Soda County citizen, I nailed it. Um, some of you didn't reach your goal, though. Um, and that's okay, because I didn't really reach my goal either. Um, but here's the turnaround. Here's the turnaround question, right? Because we're going to preach a little bit. Um, what is your current focus in life? What is your number one desire that you have, right? What, what are you chasing after? What, what are you trying to attain? What are you making your decisions based around? Um, what do you love, right? Because for Christians, right, and it sounds like a cookie-cutter Bible school answer, but, you know, deal with it. Um, I got a mic and you don't. But uh, for Christians, it should be Jesus, right, and his message, us proclaiming his message of salvation for sinners. That's what it should be, right? If we truly understand our slavery to Christ, like we talked about last week, that we don't have a will. Our will is all about doing the will of our master, Jesus, right? So our goal should be to become as much like Christ as we can and glorify him in everything we do so people know what he's worth to us. Um, and here's what's cool too, with, with other goals in our lives, um, we may reach them and we, and we may not, but what if I told you that if Christ is your goal, you will attain him, period. 
Um, this is one of the things that we're going to see that God actually promises us, and he doesn't lie. So with chasing after Christ, with pursuing Christ and him being our desire, we've got some hope. Right? We've got something that we can actually latch on to and know we will attain. But is Christ the center of our lives? Um, you know, if you say yes, then you're not being skeptical. I'm just asking, what is your proof? If you say yes, what is your proof? Um, and further, what should we do whenever we realize that we have let something else become the primary driver in our lives? Um, those are the things that we're going to be taking a look at this evening. Uh, so pay attention, right? Because everyone at some point has put something ahead of Jesus as their focus. And in those moments, we desperately need the message of grace and of a God who does not let us go in those instances and does not give up on us. And we need that to push us closer to that God and push us further into the pursuit of Christ. So, without any further ado, let's check out the next four verses. All right, we did verses 1 and 2 of Philippians, and we're going to be in chapter 1 for a minute. We're in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 this evening. And just so you know, there's Bibles out there if you're new here. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Take it. It's a good translation. But let's check it out. Let's see what Paul said to the Philippians. Verse 3. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Right, so I, I notice a few things whenever I, whenever I read this. Um, and the first thing that I notice is that Paul really loves the Philippians. Right? He thinks about them. He prays about them. He intercedes for them. He, asks, he petitions God. He, he makes requests on their behalf. Right? So Paul, and he does this with joy whenever he thinks about them. Um, and again, he thanks God as he thinks of them. But, but my question was, well, why? Right? So we know that Paul really loves these people. We talked about that a little bit last week with the introduction to the book. But why? Um, and I started kind of laughing to myself. Is Paul joyous when he thinks of them because he's in prison and he needed a break from them and they can't get to him? It's like, I think of you with joy. Because if we're going to be honest, everyone has that one person that they'd rather be in prison than hang out with. Um, apparently not. I'm the only sinner in the room because no one thought that was funny. Um, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. I don't know if that was sarcastic or not, but thank you so much. Um, but here's why Paul, this is what I came to realize in studying this. Paul is, is not joyous over the Philippians because of the Philippians themselves. Um, Paul is joyous over the Philippians uh, because he can see what is going on in them. Um, he can see what God is doing and has done in them, right? They're changing. Something is transforming them, and they're not the same people that they once were, right? Think about the history of Philippi we talked about. There was no Christian influence until Paul went there, and there wasn't even really a Jewish influence because there was no synagogue in Philippi, and you had to have at least 10 Jewish men um, to constitute a synagogue. So, like, they were completely pagan, like emperor worship of Rome. And Paul can see what they were and where they are now um, after coming to faith in Christ, right? If you go back to the chapter 16 in the book of Acts, right, you see Lydia, um, a wealthy woman who was a seeker, who was talking to some Jewish women and, and wanting to learn about the God of the Old Testament. And you see Paul going to her and telling her, well, the Old Testament points to Christ. And so Lydia, the seeker, has now found Jesus, and she is now giving uh, her wealth towards the spread of the gospel. We can see uh, the possessed girl who was once uh, a heckler of Paul trying to hinder his ministry. I'm sure, uh, or at least in my opinion, I, I would imagine she converted and the possessed girl now loves God. That The Roman jailer that Paul encountered, um, who jailers 
for the record, Roman jailers had a, a track record of being very cruel and very oppressive and very um, over the top with how they treated their prisoners. And I'm sure he has stopped those things. Uh, and he's starting to live more in kindness. So Paul can see that these people have become new people in Christ from the time that they first heard or first believed the good news, that Christ has died in our place for our sin as a substitute for us to reconcile us back to God. Um, They started living differently once they believed that. Um, But what happened, right? What happened within them um, that, that Paul can see? Paul says that they became partners in the gospel. And here's what's kind of cool. Partners can mean fellowship, right? Like they joined this fellowship that is being united with Christ because of your faith. They have have joined the family of God along with Paul, right? They're now brothers and sisters to Paul uh, for those those who have been justified by faith, right? They have... They have trusted in Christ for their salvation. Now they have entered into this family. So Paul, whenever he thinks about them, and he thinks about what God has done for them, and the fact that they are no longer under the wrath of God, Paul is just overwhelmed with joy for what God has done for them. So he thanks God whenever he thinks of them. Um, And and naturally, because he experiences that kind of joy, and he knows that they're family now, he he really cares for them like family. All right? And, And little sidebar, and I'm going to say this enough this summer that it's going to get on your nerves. I want us to be that kind of family. Um, this isn't the point of the sermon. This is a, a, a freebie. Uh, I want us to have that kind of love for each other, that whenever I think of what God's done in Steve and what God has done in Nick and Connor, that I can just be overwhelmed because I love them, and I love what God is doing, and I love what I'm seeing. Um, and I want to be with them, and I want to walk with them. That's what I want for us. Um, I want us to be involved in one another's lives. But I can't make you. All I can do is tell you. Um, what the Bible says to do. I can't make you. But anyway, uh, but I, I think Paul is focusing on something more uh, than, than just a fellowship whenever he says partnership, because partnership can mean, uh, study the Greek, uh, can mean partnership. Uh, no one thought that was funny. Apparently my sarcasm isn't going over too well. Uh, can mean actual partners in the gospel. Who'd have thunk it? Um, and what I think that he's doing whenever he says that is, is he's saying that the patterns of their lives are becoming more Christ-centered, right? Their, their desires are becoming to glorify Christ, to tell people the good news about Jesus. They're actually his partners. I, I think that he's calling them mission-minded. Um, everything is starting to revolve around Jesus, right? So Paul can see, and, and he has and is witnessing firsthand the fruits of their shared belief in the good news, um, right? Like, we're going to get into that in a minute, the kind of evidence he can see. But make no mistake about this. There is evidence of the transforming, changing power of God in them. Um, follow me on this. Whenever we experience God, whenever the gospel clicks for us, something changes. Something changes in us. Um, whenever we truly believe the gospel, something happens. And, and here's what I'm talking about. Whenever we truly, fully appreciate who we are as people apart from Jesus. Whenever we truly appreciate our own sinfulness and we can truly understand how wicked that we actually are, that every action that we've ever taken apart from Jesus has been in rebellion against God, that we have not sought to love him, that we have actually by our actions proved that we hated him in every single thing that we've done. 
And yet, in spite of that, in spite of our glad rebellion against that God, that he would send his son to earth to die for crimes that he did not commit. For crimes that we committed because he loved us. Because he wanted us to be reconciled to him. Whenever that doesn't become a story, but that actually becomes your story. That you were once a sinner, that you were an outsider, that you were separated from the God that you now love. But that God sent Christ because he loved you. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ came into the world to to save sinners of whom I am chief. Whenever that becomes your story, and it's not just a story, something happens within you. Whenever you truly begin to appreciate the love of God and your own wickedness, something goes off, right? Like a funny preacher said, it's like getting hit by a semi-truck, right? Like something's going to change about you whenever you walk away from this experience, right? Like you cannot remain the same. And, and the change in the Philippians was apparent, um, Right, their lives were becoming um, centered around showing Jesus to be great and spreading his message, right? Uh, a, a short track record of the kind of stuff that they were into. They were, they were becoming financially giving, right? Like they were, they were helping finance Paul's mission, mission trips. Um, they were giving Paul gifts while he was in prison, which we're going to see later um, in this letter. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians was talking about how Jerusalem, like the believers in Jerusalem needed help. And they were, the Philippians were all about giving money to that cause, um, we see people willing to risk their lives for the gospel from Philippi, right? A dude named Epaphroditus, which is an awesome name. It's the coolest name in this letter. Um, Epaphroditus was on his way to go minister to Paul while Paul's in prison, and he almost dies on the way, but continues his journey because he knows that Paul needs ministered to so that the gospel can continue to spread. And he was willing to risk his life. We see where, the, where Paul calls them literally partners in the gospel, that they were actually actively evangelizing in Philippi, right? Actually telling people that Christ has died for their sin and, and, and been raised from the dead if they'll believe. Um, and then in their personal lives, they have godly love for one another. Um, you can see throughout this letter that they love Paul and they love Timothy and they love Epaphroditus and they're loving one another. And one of the things Jesus said is that you'll be known as my disciples for how you love one another. Uh, and, then, and then furthermore, uh, we can see in this letter that there, is, there are no like really harsh rebukes toward the Philippians um, for like any flagrant sin. Uh, it's, uh, this letter is not like 1 Corinthians where like someone's sleeping with their stepmom and Paul's like, all right, we've got to handle this. Uh, so like there's no like flagrant disobedience. So they're living relatively holy lives. Uh, at least they're not screwing up as bad as some other churches. So they're living in pretty decent obedience, uh, save a few. Um, and to me, whenever I think about that kind of a track record, um, I think that this is like an insane amount of evidence that these people have for the work that God has uh, been doing in them to change them. Um, So truly, God has started a good work in them, right? Their salvation by giving them the faith that they have in Christ. And the fruit of God's good work is just pouring out from them naturally. Um, We're going to talk about this some more next week. But but this is why Paul can say in verse 6, because of what he can see, the evidence that he can see in their lives, he can say that I'm, I'm certain that, that he who began a good work in you will see it through its completion in the day of Jesus. That's why he can say that, because he can see how they're living, and he can see that they are not the same people that they once were. Um, now, I don't know about you guys, and maybe I had heavy metal music rub off on me for too long, um, and I've become cynical, and I can't enjoy anything. Um, I'm not the kind of guy who can read the Bible and, like, let myself get the feel-goods, right? Where he's, mm, that just felt so good. Like, I can't do that. Um, 
I always personally try to see if there's something deeper that the text is saying um, or inherently challenging us to. Um, so what I do is, is I look at this text that we were, just, that we're checking out um, and I see, man, the Philippians, um, you know, Paul is certain that they're saved. Paul is certain that God is going to finish what he started in them. There's evidence, right? We know that historically and from other parts of the letter, there's evidence of their faith. Um, so I look and I see the evidence of what they have uh, going on in them from God, and I can't help but to think that we should have evidence too. Like I said, if you claim that you're a Christian, then you're claiming Christ is the center of your life. And I asked at the very beginning, where's your proof? What's your evidence? Um, so I think that the implicit challenge of this text is do you, do we, do I have any evidence in our lives of God's beginning a good work in us? Do we have anything? Or do we settle in our minds for mere profession of faith? Um, for just, yeah, you know, I, I believe, like, in my head, like, my life's not changed, really. I go to church once in a while with my family, whatever. Um, because I don't think that this text, I don't think Paul, I don't think God will settle for that. Um, there must be evidence, right? So, so I'm going to level with you for a second. I'm going to give you guys kind of a little insight into... Uh, my mind as a pastor sometimes, um, scary. Um, the, the one thing, the one thing that I fear uh, more than almost anything else um, as a pastor, whenever I look out and, and, I, and I see you guys um, and I get to talk with you guys and interact with you guys because I, I really, I, I genuinely love you. Uh, one of the things that scares me more than almost anything is that there are people here at Revolution um, who have settled in their minds that praying a prayer or having an emotional experience or getting goosebumps during praise music constitutes as evidence that God has changed them and that they are saved. That scares me to death. Um, that's, what, that's what keeps me awake at night whenever I think about um, the church in general. And I, I have no specifics. I'm not preaching at anybody. This is just a general thought that I have that people think based off of things like that, like some chill bumps that they got one time at a service or a prayer that they prayed when they were seven, that, that all of a sudden that's their evidence. Um, that, that people think they're saved, but their lives show no difference in comparison to the rest of the world, that, that people somehow think that they're in fellowship with God, and yet they are not partners in the gospel and, and don't seek to glorify God in anything that they do. Um, there's been no change. Um, so the question that I ask myself regularly, and now I pose to you, is where's your evidence? Um, what has changed in us, right? Has a lot changed? Has a little changed? Has one thing changed? Has, has nothing changed? I don't, I don't know. Um, only you can answer that. Only, only you and God can answer that. I, I can only be accountable for me. Um, but don't get, don't get it twisted, right? Don't get it twisted here. Um, I'm not a legalist, <laughs> all right? Don't, don't get me confused on this. Um, I'm not talking about moralism. Right? I'm not talking about mere moralism whenever I say, where's your evidence? I'm not talking about a list of do's and don'ts um, that constitutes as your sole evidence. I wish it were that easy, um, because what I'm getting ready to say is a lot more open-ended, that, open-ended than that, and a lot more difficult to live with. I don't think the Bible often gives us a list of do this and don't do this, although that's sometimes in there. But more often than not, the Bible gives us this broad, sweeping principle that we're to live by. 
And that's the freedom of the New Testament. That's the freedom of the New Covenant. So what I don't mean by where is your evidence, I don't mean what don't you do anymore, right? Like, well, I used to be an alcoholic, and now I got sober. There's my evidence. Or, you know, I used to sleep around, and I don't do that anymore. I used to watch porn, and I don't do that anymore. I used to lie, and I'm honest now. Or I used to be lazy, and I got a job. Or I go to church now. Or I tithe now. Um, Although those things are good, um, and I hope that they're true, especially the last one about tithing. Um, yeah, I made a tithe joke. That's fine. It's super awkward in here. Um, although, like I said, those things are good. Um, and, and, and I hope that they're true. And those can be evidence. Those can be. Um, but here's the thing. Those things are all external. Um, that is just moralism. Um, and it's not that hard to do. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is non-believers can do moralism. Non-believers can do external behavior modification, um, where you just don't do a lot of things. Non-believers can do that, and God has started no work in them because they don't believe the gospel, right? That is the started work initiated by God, is that you would come to faith in Christ and put him at the center of your life. So if I'm not talking about external behavior modification, and I'm not talking about mere moralism, then what am I talking about? Right? What I'm talking about is a wholesale priority and life change within us where Christ becomes the center of our lives. That he's the motivation for everything that we do. Super open-ended. Right? So, so the question is, what is the focal point of your life? What is the desire of your heart? What is, if you're a heart, what is the all-consuming pulse of your life? What drives you? For Paul and the Philippians, it's, it's proclaiming Christ in everything they do. It's glorify, glorifying God in their lives, right? And, and, and don't get me twisted on this, because I've, I've fallen into this myth, um, that proclaiming Christ is merely something that we do verbally. Um, although that's very true, and I'm never going to dog that. Tell people the gospel, right? Um, what is it? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I hate that. Um, there's a way better quote from another preacher that says, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, rebuke anyone who says, if necessary, use words. <laughs> That's funny, man. <laughs> um, anyway, so like, I'm not dogging, like, telling people the gospel. Like, that's super important. Um, but what I'm telling you, don't fall into the myth that you don't proclaim Christ with your actions. Um, we proclaim Christ whenever something bad happens around us, and we, you know, have this firm resolve that, you know, God is sovereign, he's in control of this, and I'm going to cling to him through this. And, uh, and we proclaim Christ whenever, um, you know, things get rough at our job, and we can't stand our coworkers, uh, and yet we're still going to treat them with kindness. We're, we're, we're living in light of the gospel, right? Whenever you fight with your fiancé, and that's not a hint, I'm not fighting with Autumn, um, right? Or like whenever you're fighting with your wife, or like your kids aren't doing whatever that you wanted them to do, and you could still be loving and gracious towards people, that's proclaiming Christ in your lives and in your actions. Um, so don't fall into that myth that it's just verbal. It's, it's, what, it's what we do with everything, right? Uh, but the lives of Paul and his partners have become focused on, on spreading the gospel and glorifying God in every single breath that they take. Um, their finances, right? They're giving their money. Uh, they're giving their time. They're not being greedy with that. Their lifestyle, right? Like some of the do's and don'ts. The lifestyle has changed. The conversations they have because they want to tell the gospel. Everything has Christ as the center, as the motivation. Um, the desire of their lives has become to show Jesus to the world and to show the world what he is worth to them. And that is a total heart change that only God can give us. 
Um, this is a good work that only God can initiate. And what I mean is, is this. Again, the external behavior modification. God does not have to initiate that. But what God must initiate is a kind of change in us that out of gratitude and love for God, for his saving power toward us, we now want to obey. Where everything radiates off of that one truth. Right? And I, I come to realize this. Um, gratitude and love are the only things that make us have an entire reshaping of our lives. That's it. Like, like, remember that one thing that I said, like, some of you guys probably have the same story that I do, where, like, you had that one goal, and you were really trying to attain it? Think about that thing, and, and think about how you loved it so much, and you set your life around attaining it. And think about how much you truly desired that thing. Right? Now, that kind of desire for God... Only God can put in us by showing us the truth of the gospel. Because from birth by nature, we don't really love God like that. At all, really. So God has to put that in us where we're sold out to this concept that, that we've been loved first and now we love him back. And that radiates off everything we do. Right? Or think about it this way. This is an inward change that works its way out and manifests itself in in how we live. It's not just an external change, right? If Christ is a centered inwardly, or if he's a center inwardly, he will show himself outwardly. Um, it's much deeper than, a, than an external list. Um, so what do you desire? What do you desire? Um, but here's the kicker, right? Um, we all know this. We all know that we don't always live um, in pursuit of Christ. We don't always live with Christ as the center of everything that we do. Um, we, we get distracted, uh, and our priorities shift, and we become very short-sighted because we, we are so focused on this temporary world and everything that it offers and, and chasing whatever it is here that we love more than Jesus in that moment. Um, and we just become incredibly short-sighted, um, we, and we begin to live our lives as if we've never had an encounter with the gospel, because we forget about the gospel. We, we fail to appreciate our own sinfulness and the love that God had for us. Um, and when our priorities and our desires shift away from Jesus, and he is no longer the priority, um, and it shifts onto something else, we become idolaters. Um, and we talked about being a slave to sin last week. Um, whenever we do that, whenever we let something else become our priority, uh, we are trying to sell ourselves back into slavery. Because we know it's not going to end well. We know it wasn't satisfying to begin with, but somehow we think it's going to help us out now. Um, and we forget that Christ has indeed set us free to obey him. Um, and whenever we do that, we attempt to stifle the good work that God has began in us. Um, and I was thinking about this. I think we do this for different reasons. Um, I, I came up with a couple. Uh, I think they're generally true. Um, for some people, their reason for um, giving Christ the backseat or knocking him down on the priority list is they worry. They worry about the future. Um, you worry about, you know, your, your job, um, you know, your, your education. You worry about um, your, your marriage, your kids, whatever. And I've fallen into this one lately. Um, I'm getting ready to move into my house, um, which is pretty cool. But I'm getting ready to move into my house, and there's bills coming, and there's way more responsibility than I've ever had to handle in my entire life. Uh, I'm getting married in a couple months, so there's even more responsibility. Um, and I worry, man, and I don't know how many of you guys this hits, but, like, I struggle with greed. Um, so, like, money, uh, finances is, like, a really big thing for me. Um, 
and I have uh, at times in the last few months like let finances direct everything that I do. You know, man, I, I should I should give to this or, you know, I should sponsor a kid or I should give to this missionary or whatever. But, you know, I really don't know how this is going to look, how tight my bills are going to be, so I really need to save all that I can uh, instead of living with Christ as a sinner and saying money is just money and it's been given to me to further the kingdom and I need to give it away and help. Um, and, I, and I know, like, everyone will have their different thing that they worry about. That's mine. I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, but here's what I came to realize when I was thinking about this this past week. Um, when we aren't living with Christ as the center of our lives because uh, we worry about the future, what we're actually saying in that moment is that we are afraid that Jesus will not do good for us. That's actually what we're saying. Whenever we let us or our finances or our family or our marriage or our whatever be the driver of our life. We're saying, I don't trust God to do good for me. And I'm not health and wealth preaching you here. I'm not Joel Osteen. I don't play that crap. Um, But what I am saying is this. It makes no sense for us to live that way because we can look back to the cross. We can look and see that Jesus has secured our eternal future and has done good for us there. Why would he not do good for us here and now? And we might not get everything that we want. Things might not go the way that we had planned. But if he did the ultimate good for us then, why would he not continue to do good for us now? So whenever we we don't trust him to be good to us, we think that we have to be the center of our lives, and we have to look out for ourselves. Um, That's what we think in those moments. But maybe you're not a worrier, right? Maybe you're more of a hippie, I don't know. Um, For other people... um, I think that we put Christ as a secondary priority uh, because we think that the world is offering us something that Jesus isn't that's going to satisfy us. Um, Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's sex, maybe it's money, maybe it's power. Whatever it is, um, we think that the world's going to give us something that's going to satisfy us, that Christ just isn't going to cut it. Um, And I've come to realize this, right? I've had some, like, epiphanies this week. Um... We only think that because we have become short-sighted and have forgotten that everything in this life is temporary and it's all going to burn anyway. So we become obsessed with chasing after things here that we think are going to satisfy us. And again, it's, it's temporary. It's not going to go with us to the end. And here's what we forget whenever we think that something temporary is going to satisfy us. We forget that we have been created for the eternal. Right? That's why everything that we've tried to satisfy ourselves with here, apart from Christ, just hasn't cut it. It's because it's all temporary, and that's not what we were made for. Right? And only Christ is going to be the one who offers us the eternal longings of our heart. And he offers us eternal peace with God. And that's what we really want. That's why we chase things here in this life, because we think it's going to give us peace. But it's, it's not going to. Only Christ can give us peace. And we become too easily satisfied, and we forget this too because we are stupid, right? Human beings are dumb, and we forget this, that nothing in this world has ever satisfied us in the past. So why is this new thing that the world's offering us going to satisfy us now? We're dumb. Um, But whatever the reason, whatever the reason that we get distracted, um, we cannot let ourselves remain distracted. 
right? Because here, check this, this is what's cool. The proof of the good work that God has started in us is our reprioritizing and making Christ the center of our lives again and again and again. And here's what I've come to realize, that the Christian life isn't you become a Christian and Christ is the center of your life forever. And I know this sounds awful. (laughs) I know that wording sounded weird. We're like, yeah, Christ is the center of my life and I'm never gonna stray from that. And that's what being a Christian is, bull. Um, that's what the ideal is, but that's not what happens uh, because we're sinners, right? Um, the Christian life is constantly Christ is the center of my life and I'm going to screw up, but I'm going to constantly put Jesus back on, in the words of Matt Chandler, back on the throne of my heart again and again and again. This is what Chandler calls the awkward dance of sanctification, and I really like how he says that, Um, where it's, okay, Jesus, you're the center of my life. Sit on the throne of my heart. Rule over me. I want to do what you say. I want to be concerned with what you are concerned with. I want to do the things that please you, Um, but I really hate that guy, Uh, so step off the throne there for a minute. Let me sit there and hate him for a minute. Man, I screwed up. Uh, Jesus, please be the center of my life again. Get back up on the throne. I'm kind of worried about my job and how much money I make, so let me sit up there and be greedy for a while. Nah, I screwed up. Get back. That's, that's, that's the awkward dance. That is Christian living, where we constantly are reprioritizing and putting Christ back as the top priority of our lives um, and being obedient to him. Um, and this is what's cool. That is the good work that God started in you, that we would keep going back to Christ and keep persevering in our trying to put him at the center of our lives again and again. And, there, and that therefore causes us to grow in our faith because we can see, man, the last time that I tried to sit on the throne of my heart in this situation, I realized that what Christ wanted me to do was the right thing anyway. Uh, so I'm gonna let him sit there through this. That's what it means to grow in your faith. That's what it means to persevere. Um, but that's the goal. All right, so, so maybe, um, maybe, maybe you're sitting there um, and you're thinking of the ways that you've become distracted, um, that you've let, you know, whatever it is become your priority, um, whether it's worry or whether it's something that you think something in the world's going to satisfy you. Um, or maybe um, you're sitting there and you realize that even though you've been coming to church for a long time, uh, Christ has never been the actual focal point of your life. Um, that he's been a Sunday thing or something that you do with your family and you've been lying to yourself about your faith in Jesus. Um, I'm here to tell you that there are, there, there's one answer for both groups of people. Actually, there's one answer for all groups of people and that's to repent. Um, and repent means this. Repent means to change your mind, right? So prioritize either for the first time or reprioritize your life and put Christ at the top. Believe that he died in your place for your sin. Appreciate your own wickedness and appreciate the love that God had for you. And as a response to that, make him the top thing. Um, That's what Jesus is always calling for. Our reprioritization, if that is a word, right? Our repentance. That's what Jesus is always calling for. And here's the beauty of the gospel. There is always, 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 no matter how many times you screwed up, no matter what, there is always grace for the wayward and there's grace for the sinner. There is always grace at the cross for the repentant, no matter how many times you screwed up, no matter how many times you've tried to sit on the throne of your own heart. If we will but put Christ where he belongs as king of our lives, I can promise you this. God has begun a good work in you. If we will repent, God has begun the good work in us. And I say that because of this. It is God who has made Jesus attractive to you. 
It it is God who has opened your heart by grace to this Christ-centered submission. That's not just a moral, uh, moral external behavior modification. It's God who opened your heart to want Christ to actually rule over all of your actions. And I can tell you the same thing that, that Paul said. If that's where we're at, if that's what our goal is, to let Christ rule and reign over us because we love him because of the gospel, then I am certain that God will complete the good work that he started in you. And here's what that means. And, and I get kind of amped about this because this is awesome. That means that God will not abandon you when you become distracted and let something other than Jesus drive your life. He will not disown you. He will not give up on you. He will not abandon you. Because of your faith in Jesus, God calls you his child, and God does not abandon his children. Your your daily failures, they don't mean that, that God will disown you. He has claimed you as his. So, so don't fear failure. Keep coming back. Keep coming back to repentance and keep coming back to grace. Right? And here's another good thing about God. God will call you back to himself. He won't let you rest. He will do whatever is necessary to bring you to a place where you will reprioritize again and again and again. And sometimes that can be a scary place that he brings you to. So it's better that we submit now before it absolutely hits the fan. Um, And the reason why God won't give up and the reason why God will bring us to those places where we would reprioritize is because he finishes what he starts. He finishes what he starts. And he has more grace than you have sin. That's the most mind-blowing thing about the gospel is that God has more grace than you can screw up. You cannot outrun the grace of God with your mistakes and with your being centered around something else. There's always grace whenever we repent, no matter how many times we have screwed up. Right, consider this, and I don't know where Christianity, at least in the United States, got off of this, um, but, but follow me on this. If God loved you at your worst and sent Christ to die in your place while you were a rebel against him, and now you've begun to submit, right, and you've begun to, to attempt to put Christ at the center, but you're screwing up, do, do you think that now that you come to faith that God's going to love you less than he did before you even knew him? You think he's going to let you go? That doesn't even make sense. God will not do that because Christ's sacrifice on the cross was too costly for God to lose even one person that Jesus died for. He will not abandon us. That is one of the single greatest truths of the Bible, that God will not let us go. That when we come to true faith, where Christ is our center, where Christ is our life, God does not stop working in us until we come face to face with him. If Christ is your goal, God says you will attain him because he will not give up on us. No matter how many times we screw up and put something else at the center of our lives. And that kind of love is worth basing your life on and basing your life around. That is the God worth living for and telling people about. So I think, I think one of the things the text is challenging us with this information It's to live like that's true. To live with Christ as the center of our life. To live without a fear of failure that that God's not going to abandon us, right? To live with this, I understand the love God has for me and it binds me to him. Right? So, So 
Again, this is super open-ended. I'm not even going to try to tell you how to apply this to your life. It's going to give you some, some very broad sweeps. Um, whatever that means needs to go in your life to be more submissive to, to Christ, or whatever that means needs to go uh, for you to be more Christ-centered in all of your actions, chuck it. Chuck it out. Get rid of it. Um, you know, and whatever needs to fall down a few notches in your priorities, let it go. Um, and here's why. Even though as, as hard as that can be, easier said than done, Dave, right? Like, I, I get it. As hard as that can be, um, why? Because nothing even comes close to the beauty of the grace that God has shown us through Jesus. Or who would call us his children and hold us close to him even when we screw up and rebel against him. Nothing even matches that kind of beauty. So why would we want to submit to anything but that? You know, Paul understood that. The Philippians understood that, and that's why they lived the lives that they did. Um, so it's my prayer, and I do pray for you guys individually and us as a church often. Um, it is my prayer that we would understand the grace of God this way, the same way that Paul did. Um, and then that we would live lives that come with that kind of a heart change where Jesus is the primary motivation for everything and proclaiming his good news is, is our motivation for all things. You know, that, that Christ would be the drive of our lives more and more until either he returns or we go to him. That is what we strive for. Um, that is what God is working within us. And that's what God says that he will complete because he finishes what he starts. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for being a merciful, loving God um, who has bought us back from your wrath with your son Jesus' blood, um, for being a good father who does not abandon his children, um, no matter how badly we screw up or, or how often we put something at the forefront of our life that isn't you and we become idolaters, that you will take us back every time if we just repent. And, and I thank you for that. Father, it's our prayer here at Revolution that you would make your grace more real to us um, because nothing is going to motivate us for complete life change like gratitude. So God, I pray that, that the gospel um, is no longer uh, just a story to the people here, but it is their story. That they were once separated from you, but that you drew them near to yourselves, yourself. God, help us to live lives that give you glory and give you honor. Help us to live like slaves. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.